0: Hi guys, and Happy New Year! Yes, Happy New Year. It's September and in some places in the world, in some communities, it's time to celebrate the New Year. It's New Year for the Jain community in India, for Ethiopians and it's Jewish New Year. The turn of a new year always marks a special time. It's a time full of hope and motivation that the next year will bring happiness, good health and positive experiences. And so, in this episode of the Munalogues, Hello World, Hello Change, we are going to hear stories from Saudi Arabia and Israel. Stories that bring hope. Stories of trust. For if we don't have either, what do we have? So let's do this. A few years ago, I saw this documentary about when children first start lying. The scene that stuck to me the most was the one involving three-year-old toddlers and their mums, and, of course, chocolate cake. To show that lying is a process for children and how it develops, they did the following experiment, if you want to call it an experiment. The mom, her child and a chocolate cake were left in a room. The mom would tell her little one that she needed to get something from another room. And while she was gone, the kid was not supposed to eat the cake. No easy feat, right? Everyone knows the lure of good chocolate cake. When temptation is placed right in front of our noses, it takes a lot of willpower and self-restraint to do what's right. And it doesn't matter how old you are. Temptation calls to all ages. So you can guess how the cake experiment developed for the toddlers. As soon as the mom had left the room, her child would stare at the cake as if under a magic spell. Some crept closer hesitatingly, others headed straight for it. In any case, once the child got close to the cake and its lovely chocolatey smell, all self-restraint was gone. Some kids took only one bite, trying to hide the fact that they just did something their mom had explicitly told them not to do. One boy, however, was so overwhelmed by the sweet temptation, that he just let his head fall into the cake. After the kids had given into temptation, their mums would return. Checking out the state of the cake, and of course, seeing that her child had had a taste, the mother would ask her toddler, Did you eat the cake? The children would shake their head no. No cake for them. The mother would then ask, Are you lying? to which the children would nod their head. We all discover lying as a child, maybe not with chocolate cake, but we all have this moment when we can make a choice between being sincere and telling a lie. And usually as children, we get caught. And we all get taught by our parents that lying is not nice. Especially in close relationships, we all want to be able to trust and rely on another person. Lying is just not the way to get there, In business relationships, it's the same. We do want to have a trusting relationship with our business partners. We might go about it differently in achieving those, but in the end, we don't want to make a deal with someone where we believe that person is being dishonest with us. In Germany, this leads people to not want to be friends when making a business deal, because generally people believe that they lose objectivity when they make a deal with a friend. In other countries and cultures, Mexico, for instance, it's the opposite way. There it's common to get to know your business partner, learn about their family, because people feel they can trust their prospective business partner more when they know them better. Trust is essential, both in private and business lives. And trust can be established only in the absence of lies. Interestingly enough, as we grow older, lying can become sort of a gray area for us. Somehow we believe there are areas where lying is okay. Cheating at a test in school is common. We believe that success, in this case, getting good grades, is so important that it doesn't matter how we get there. If we cheat successfully, we feel we have tricked the teacher. The fact that we lied seems to be okay, especially when our friends and classmates are doing the same. And from then on, it just continues. We grow used to the fact that lying is part of the world. In some business areas, we accept it without flinching. We even partake. Because that's the way the world works. That's the way to play the system. In some areas, we grow accustomed to the lying. I'm thinking politics and some marketing schemes here, if that's not too cynical. What usually happens though, because we know from our own experience that people lie, we get skeptical of other people. And it leads us to walking around the world meeting others with a mistrust that they don't necessarily deserve. Yet there are some people out there who build their business on exactly that concept, trusting the other person. They have this stout belief that people are at heart honest and they are willing to run their business on it. I'm talking about honesty cafes, shops and libraries. People running these kinds of stores believe that the other will pay what they can and what they owe. They believe in honesty and human decency. While the world is a playground full of diversity, where people have different cultures and traditions, I am amazed and at the same time weirdly uplifted by the fact that you can find the concept of honesty stores in many cultures. For instance, in Canada, Ireland, the UK, Germany, Taiwan, Indonesia, the Philippines. In some of these countries, the concept of honesty cafes has a long tradition. In others, it's a relatively new idea. Another country in which you can find a business that depends on the sincerity of its customers is Saudi Arabia. The Middle Eastern country borders the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea and is home to nearly 34.8 million people. With 90% Arabs and 10% of Afro-Asian descent, the country appears to be relatively homogeneous at first glance. But Saudi Arabia has a large expatriate community, over 38% of its population are immigrants. Mecca is considered to be the holiest of Muslim cities, as it is the place where Muhammad was born. And Mecca is the place where you can find the honest bakery. The Honest Bakery is a typical Arab bakery, where you get white and whole-wheat pita bread, buns and rolls. Except for one little detail. Instead of a cashier, it has a big silver box. That is the trust box, explains Ghazi Hassan Tass to Al Jazeera. He's the bakery owner. There is no cash counter. Customers pick up what they want and then pay for what they got by putting cash in the trust box. The prices for all the baked goods are clearly marked. You take the bread that you need and drop the exact amount of money in a slot in the trust box. There are no monitors, no cameras, says Gazi Hazan Even the employees don't look at the customers. It's a concept that is based on trust. You take what you need and pay what you owe. It's a rather unusual approach to business, for after all you need to pay your employees, pay the bills for maintenance and all the ingredients. In business, like elsewhere in our lives, most humans prefer security, especially if it is so easy to come by. After all, Ghazi Hassan Tass would only need to have a cashier in place. So why this risky business approach? For the bakery owner, the answer is simple. I wanted to try this idea. Can we really trust people? And oh my God, people prove that they deserve to be trusted. Once a month, Gazi Hassan Tass opens the trust box and according to his experience, the amount usually equals what he should have earned. But the bakery owner offers more than trust to his customers. For those who can't afford to buy the food, it's free. But what to do when you simply lack that kind of trust? When life taught you that it's better to keep your guard When not only your personal experience, but those of your family, your friends, your ancestors. When all of the world around you tells you that there are people, especially a certain kind of people, you shouldn't trust. The answer is easy. You've got to talk to exactly those people. You've got to meet them, get to know them, the people you assume to be untrustworthy, bad, who are out to get you. You need to meet the people about whom you have these images, concepts, stereotypes, to find out if the individual standing before you fits these ideas and thoughts. At least that's the way Hand in Hand has decided to go. Hand in Hand is a community and school project in Israel. Hand in Hand can be found in seven different places all over the country, from the capital and holy city, Jerusalem, to the economic and cultural center that is Tel Aviv Jaffa to the predominantly Arab city Qara in the Wadi Ara, or valley region in the north of Israel, as well as in Galilee, Be'erberl and Israel's third largest city of Haifa. All of these seven regions have known conflict between the Jewish and Arab population. All of them have to face the challenge of needing to find a way to live together, or at least peacefully coexist, no matter who is in the majority. And all of these places have in common that people are actively trying in the Hand in Hand School and Community Project. Hand in Hand is a project that dedicates itself to building inclusion and equality between Arab and Jewish citizens of Israel. In its own words, Hand in Hand was established to combat one of Israel's greatest existential threats the growing social alienation and lack of trust between Jewish and Arab citizens of Israel. The way to do it is simple. Let people meet and learn from and with one another on a daily basis and in this way, create a daily practice of a shared society. And so back in 1998, the first two hand-in-hand schools opened, one in Galilee in the north of Israel and the other in Jerusalem. The latest addition to the hand-in-hand school system came in 2020, in the midst of Corona, when Kafr Kwasim Kindergarten opened its doors for Arab and Jewish children in an area where mostly Arab Israelis live. There are currently more than 2,000 students enrolled in one of the seven hand-in-hand schools. 60% are Arab, 40% are Jewish. Besides the subjects that you can find in most schools, There's a strong emphasis on multiculturalism and identity education. These sound like big words, but in reality, it's pretty down to earth. The different traditions, symbols, stories, and songs of Muslim, Jewish, and Christian holidays are part of a shared calendar, giving the students the opportunity to feel pride and excitement in their heritage, as well as discovering and respecting the other. We live in such a small space with so much diversity around us, but we fear it because we don't speak to each other, because we don't know each other, says Vicky Mahul, a graduate of Hand in Hand and currently studying law at Tel Aviv University. I grew up differently in an environment that really allowed me to speak my voice, my story, but also to be able to open to others and hear their pain, their joy, their stories and their identity. But it doesn't end there. Core subjects like literature, history, art, are all subjects that include the perspective of the so-called other. For how do you teach the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to students who bring their personal history into the classroom? There were a lot of problems in 2014 during the war with Gaza, recalls Sama, a 15-year-old young alumni from the bridge over the Wadi school in Wadi Ara. There were a lot of conflicts in our classroom. It was so hard to get over it because the Palestinians were so hurt that something like this was being done. And the same for the Israelis. Because they felt they were just protecting themselves. I remember this time when I went to my friend and her Israeli friends had started to talk about Palestinians, saying they are bad, that they deserve what's happening to them. And my friend said, you can't talk in general about all Palestinians like that. There are people that are really harming us, but it's not all of the people. And that really meant a lot to me, because it showed me that I'm not the only one who believes that a mix of Israelis and Palestinians is possible. It's really possible, but people don't know what's waiting for them, and fear is the thing that holds us back the most. Maybe it's this fear and the fact that it's easier not to have a conversation why 99% of children in Israel get their education in separate school tracks. Jews with Jews, Arabs with Arabs. For Michael Fahun, 39-year-old director of the Hand in Hand Preschool in Haifa, it is therefore important that kids come together at an early age. The children in our preschool don't have their parents' baggage in our conflicts. The real cultural encounter happens here, which ripples out to the families. In order to make this cultural encounter work, Jewish and Arab co-teachers teach the children Hebrew and Arab from the first day. The system is completely bilingual and thereby offers a first tool to bridging the gap – communication. Being a five-year-old girl who only spoke Arabic, and going to school with Israelis who only spoke Hebrew and not knowing how to make a connection between the two sides. At first, it was really hard. It felt like it was impossible, shares Sama her experience of her first day at the hand-in-hand school. I'm a pretty social person, but I still remember the first day. We didn't speak the same language, so we communicated through body language, through drawings, through tone of voice. It's everything else at first. Being able to communicate in the language of the so-called other is essential to start bridging the gap and build trust that transcends years of harsh and troublesome experiences on both sides. That communication is key is a belief that is also shared by Israeli President Revlin. In March 2020, he said in a message to the Hand in Hand project, As someone who grew up in a home where we spoke the two languages, And as somebody who was told by his father, many stories in Arabic, I truly understand the power of language. It holds the power to open a window into another culture, the power to bring us closer, the power to connect. Hand in hand alumni, Jews and Arabs grow up to be agents of change and influence the Israeli society. They are true ambassadors of understanding that we are not sentenced to live together but rather that we are meant to live together. The cynic in me might say, well, he's a politician, what good are his words? But the optimist in me replies, it's again a question of trust. He may not mean his words, but what if he does? After all, it has to start somewhere, with someone. To make that kind of start isn't easy. Nadia, whose son attends a hand-in-hand school, says that when growing up, people always talked about how they needed to stay separate from the Jews. We shouldn't get involved with them, that we're in a totally different life situation than they are. That's what I grew up hearing, but I never agreed with that. I always thought that we are all humans. We are all equal. But despite her belief, her children's father was more skeptical about sending their son to a mixed school. What do you mean, school with Jews? But then once we had arrived and we experienced it, he totally changed. He's really supportive, he's really active. It's really changed. But they are both reactions. On the one hand, it's this amazing special school. On the other hand, people come to me and ask me, but are you okay with the fact that your kids will be raised to live like Jews? Or that maybe your son will fall in love with a Jewish woman? What does that mean? It's like if your son goes abroad to study and then he returns with an Italian woman. What's the difference? And so the hand-in-hand schools are not only focused on education and meeting the other in the classroom. The project has built extensive community activities because in order to create a shared society it has to be lived. The hand-in-hand communities enjoy parent-child activities, civic engagement, Lectures and workshops, countrywide family gatherings, leadership seminars, facilitated dialogue sessions, language classes, shared holiday celebrations, cultural text study, and the upkeep of community gardens. There are currently 3,000 active adult community members and over 1,200 students on a waiting list. Groups of parents in new locations are asking for new schools. In order for the community activities to work, the hand in hand project relies on the parents, the teachers, and their families. Or, as Daphna Plan, a mother at the Hand in Hand Jaffa preschool, puts it, you have to create it. It won't happen by itself. It's interesting that trusting people is considered a risky business. Trusting the other to educate your children, to listen to your story, To be willing to connect despite past experiences. Trusting to build a relationship. Trusting the other to hold up their end of the deal and give you the money they owe you. We all have our own experiences that make us cautious when it comes to trusting people. Be it in business matters or personal relationships. And yet, there is a lot more trust going on than we think. We trust that people will honor their contract or their word. We trust that we get the right medical advice, or that our paycheck will come on the promised day. We trust that the food we buy in the supermarket is edible, and we trust that the food is prepared well when we go out to a restaurant. We trust that the taxi driver takes us to our destination, that the bus driver will stop when we have to get off. Despite the experiences we have made, we do trust others. And this trust expands beyond our immediate family and friends. There's a lot more trust around us. We just have forgotten to see it. And so I'm leaving you with these questions of trust. In which areas do you trust and don't see it? In which areas could you do with a little more trusting? For me, I know I have my trust issues. But if Ghazi Hassan Tass can base his livelihood on trust, and the people at the Hand-in-Hand projects are willing to give it a shot, what's stopping me? I can give it a try, for I know I can change. I have trust in that.